Hello and welcome to Between the Mountains Adventure Podcast. Delivering in-depth interviews, expeditions and adventures. Be sure to check us out on social media and I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Today's guest is Tyler Andrews. Now, Tyler is an incredibly good endurance runner, and in recent times, he's shifted his attention, not completely, but slightly away from the, that road running and those marathons and constantly getting insanely good times there, and going on to the mountains where he set himself a project, Lost the S, where he wants to get 10 fastest known times in some mountains, and he's just finished up a season there smashing I think four off the top of my head um, we talk about specifically Ojos, Ojos del Salado I'm doing my best for the pronunciation there and also Cotopaxi too and we kick the interview off right straight into those two big topics and talk about his whys for being in the mountains and, and lighting that fire inside of you which I really hope you enjoy and then we move on more onto the mindset and a couple of the other adventures that he's done too so I really really hope you enjoy the interview but I'm just fully aware that I gave a kind of a big intro last episode so I'm gonna try and keep this one a bit shorter just quickly I have noticed a couple of other reviews. I'll just quickly go through them. One gave a pun, so I'm gonna read that one out. But thank you very much to Seltra in Sweden for giving a five-star written review on the Apple Podcast. Thank you so much. Uh, also, I noticed one from November last year, a one-star review for my third ever episode saying that the guest sounded like he was on his first high school trip. So thank you so much for leaving that. And thank you also to A. Vangen in Norway for leaving a written five-star review. Greatly appreciated. Lastly is Poet Hitchhiker. Um, I always read it as Poet Hitchhiker, but that's Bronwyn from Instagram. She's actually shared the podcast a few times in her story. So thank you so much. But you've written... A real gen, interviews ask guests great questions, and I love the wide strokes and broad ranges, brackets pun intended, covered in topics from a Canadian who lives between the mountains. So thank you so much for that. Otherwise, no further ado. I hope you enjoy the interview. See you on the other side. Tyler, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. I'm stoked to be here. Yeah, and I, I tell you what, I, I'm massively excited for the fact that you came back. This is actually, um, for li people listening out there, this is a re-recording uh, about two months later because the internet just had an absolute fallout. So uh, I really appreciate you coming back. And uh, I think the big news is you've achieved yet another fastest known time, right? In the time that we've uh, been reorg reorganizing this. Yeah, I think I think so. I'm just trying to remember when, when exactly was the last time we talked, but... Yeah, we. I, I um. I just got back to the United States after about three months in South America, and we managed to sneak one more FKT attempt in right at the end of the trip there, and so it worked out super well. It was a really great day, um. And yeah, ha happy to talk through that later. But but yeah, it was awesome. We got one more in the books. So yeah, I think we're up to four out of ten now. Is is uh where we are in the overall project that we're going for. That's massive. That's so, it's it's like exciting to read about the updates you do. There's something about the energy you put out there for everyone to see and read. It's, it's like, it's electrifying. It's like, it like genu genuinely fires me up. So I appreciate it anyway. Thanks. I, I've heard you talking about setting big and public goals uh, on, on other podcasts. With that in mind, I wanted to kick it off chatting about originally those two big fastest known times that you just achieved. So let's start with Ojos del Salado. 
what were your whys for this challenge? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think that with anything, especially really long and hard physical stuff, you have to have a really good why because even if you're having a great day doing something long, you're going to have moments where it, it just doesn't feel good. It feels hard. Like the effort doesn't match up uh, with what you're doing or how long you have left. And you're just going to feel really sorry for yourself. And I think if you don't have a really strong why, it's really easy to just bail in those moments. And so I think one of the things I've learned over the last you know, few years of really focusing on this stuff is what is my why? And, you know, I think it, it does change from, you know, year to year and from even race to race or record to record that you're going for. But for me in particular, this one, Ojos del Salado was a big, uh, it was a big unknown for me. And I think that the why of why I was doing that one was really to, to kind of test myself at something really different. Um, you know, I came into the sport really in a, you know, traditional track and field cross country into road running, marathoning, some shorter, flatter road ultra stuff. And now over the years, I've kind of dabbled into the mountain stuff, some trail running, that kind of thing. And, and the Ojos del Salada record, you know, Ojos is the second tallest mountain in the Americas. It's uh, 6,893 meters. It's a big, big mountain a lot of vert um it was a long route that i was doing and it was really just unlike anything i'd ever tried to do before and it was something that i was really excited about but i really had no idea how it was going to go and i've always loved the mountains i've always loved pushing myself in the mountains but i'd never really tried to do something more competitive and really pushing my limits like this before so i think for that one my why was really I want to see if this is, you know, something that, that I can put more effort into in the future, like something that a, I can get excited about and B I can actually do well at and, and, you know, perform at a level that I feel is, uh, you know, is, is representative of, of the work I put in and, you know, is going to make me competitive kind of on, on the world stage in this very, very, niche of a niche sport that is you know speed climbing and, and ultra running and, and stuff like that so I think that was really the why was you know just getting out there and figuring out like hey this seems like it could be a potential pretty big fork in the road um for me and and which way am I going to go is this something that I'm going to kind of keep doing for fun in my off season or is it like this is really where I want to focus my competitive energies going forward yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's actually, um, I'm doing research on a guest who's coming up on the show. And he said in an interview that he, he ran from, uh, you know, credit to anyone listening who knows who this is as well. Uh, he ran from uh, BC, Vancouver, all the way down to, all the way down to South America, down to Argentina, Chile, Chile. Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah, I know. Yeah, <laughs> epic, epic expedition. But he did that. And then um, he did another running, running thing. And he, he soon realized, you know, okay, so he's the guy who can run. You know, should, should I do something else? And he didn't want to pigeonhole himself. So he started doing biking. Mm -hmm. He's now training cross-country skiing. Uh, would, that, would you say that was a similar thing as well, just trying to diversify all the different things that you can do? Yeah, totally. I think, I mean, I spent, you know, 10 years or so of my career really focusing on speed and, you know, running again, kind of traditional entry to the sport from a distance running perspective. And 
I think part of me was just like, honestly getting a little bored. It was like, you're doing the same things. You're going to the same races, you're doing the same training. You're just trying to get a little bit faster. And I think that that like idea of, okay, I could just kind of keep chipping away and training year after year. And I can take a couple more minutes off my marathon time. Like it just didn't get me as excited anymore. You know, like when I was 22, it was really exciting to go like, oh yeah, I could go from 220 to 210. Like, and now it's like, well, it's just not that like those last couple minutes to me, you know, I'm not going to be Elliot Kipchoge. I'm not going to be a world-class marathoner. So is it worth like totally pouring myself all in to just get a couple more minutes and kind of be, you know, a couple miles behind those guys. And to me, the answer was no, like it just didn't light that fire inside me. And I think that's really what you have to have to, to do anything a hundred percent is, you know, my, my housemate here in Flagstaff is a guy named Jim Walmsley is one of the best ultra runners in the world. And he says like, you have to be completely obsessed with something uh, to kind of really get all of yourself out of it. And that I think really speaks to how I felt about this project in particular, or, or, or Ojos in particular as part of this bigger FKT project was like, I was totally obsessed with it. Like I was training for another race in January and like for the few months before that. And I was like, this is what I would do. when I was kind of like daydreaming as I would like think about this mountain and these, like what the route was like and how we would train for it. And I think that spoke to just like having that fire relit of something that got me really excited about pushing my own limits and figuring out, okay, this is something that I think I can be kind of good at, but I don't know. There's all this uncertainty. It's really kind of scary, but at the same time, it's really exciting. And that was a feeling that I just felt like I hadn't had in a while in terms of running goals. Like my athletic goals, I felt like had been cool, but not, they weren't, it wasn't that same level of like, oh man, I'm just like, I'm thinking about this 24 hours a day and I'm just excited to get down there and see what happens. And so I think that, yeah, in terms of diversifying, to go back to your question, I think it's, you know, we're always looking for ways to keep things exciting and keep that fire going and kind of keep that obsessive feeling. And is some people I think can probably do the same thing for their whole life. Like I know lots of people who, you know, they run marathons and that's it. They just have been running marathons for 40 years. And it's like, that's the thing they love to do. And it's like the routine that they're in and they still get that fire. And I think for me, like I still love speed training and, you know, running fast, but I don't think that's the only thing I want to do. I want to figure out like, okay, what else can I do with my body and mind? And like, are there actually other places where I might be better suited competitively? Um, so I guess that from a diversification perspective is, is kind of what was going on. Yeah, absolutely. And the mountains are quite a sexy topic as well, aren't they? So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I just love the mountains too. It's, you know, again, like I, before I kind of saw the mountains as like a place that I went to, play around and relax in my off season. Like when I wasn't doing what I would consider, you know, quote unquote, real training for my running, like flat running, road running, track running. Um, now it's like, Oh man, like I can just go there every day. Like I live right next to the mountains here in Flagstaff now. And I did an Ecuador too. And it's like, I can just go run up in the mountains and hike around and like run up cool routes like every single day. And that is training. It's like, it's training and it's fun. So I think, that was kind of an aha moment of like, oh yeah, like I can kind of get the best of both worlds here. 
Yeah, and I was going to say the same thing as you uh, as you did as well. Uh, you know, about being obsessed. You said right at the start of the you know the first question, you've got to make sure you have a quite a big why, otherwise you're just going to stop and think, what, what, why am I doing this? Exactly. So, so yeah, I think that really shows in the FKTs you've you've achieved. So, so now let's talk about Cotopaxi. That was a really mm-hmm. incredible record you achieved there too. Thank you. Why did you decide to take on Cotopaxi? That was um, so the Cotopaxi mark was probably the the stiffest mark in terms of competition that I was going for. The other records that I've done have been, I mean, they were all hard. They were all amazing athletes, but Cotopaxi, that record is held by Carl Egloff, who um, I don't know if your listeners know that name. If you don't, you should. Um, Carl is the arguably the best big mountain speed climber in the world. Um, he's Swiss Ecuadorian. He lives just outside Quito, Ecuador, which is where I was based for the you know first few months of this year. And he's a great friend of mine. We've done a lot of running and climbing together and he is just an absolute legend. Like I really look up to him as a mentor. He's been just absolutely crushing the last like five or maybe even eight years. Um, I think starting with Kilimanjaro, he set that FKT, which broke Killian Jornet's mark there. Killian obviously is a name that a lot of people probably know. And then he also broke Killian's marks on Aconcagua, Denali, Elbrus. So his big project is getting the seven summit speed records. Um, and obviously that had to get put on a little bit of a back burner for COVID times. Um, but he's getting back on it. I think he's looking at going to the Himalaya next year to scout out Everest. Um, so he's only got three left. He's got Antarctica, Everest, and Karsten's Pyramid down in, um, I think it's in Indonesia. Um, but anyways, th- a bit of context of why that mark was uh, particularly uh, stiff is because it was a Carl Egloff mark. So we, we actually like had a joke in our house in, in Quito with my roommates and I, that, like, all right, like, once you get a Carl Egloff record, like, that's a different caliber record. Like, it's one thing to go <laughs> and do these other ones, but, like, okay, when come talk to me when you got a Carl Egloff record. So, yeah, that was uh, <laughs> that was just, like, the context for me of, like, it, it was kind of that one, again, going back to things being kind of big and scary, like, that was definitely a big and scary one for a handful of reasons. The first of which is that it's a Carl Egloff record. The second of which is this was the first time that I had ever been up on a really high glaciated mountain by myself. Um, so Ojos de Salado is interesting because it's in the Atacama Desert in Chile and it's so dry there that during the summer when we were there in January, it's, it's there's almost no snow on it. There's like one snow field near the top and otherwise it's basically you know a rocky scramble with a couple little technical pitches at the very top. Um, which is kind of incredible for an almost 7,000 meter mountain. Um, but, you know, it's the same as, as Aconcagua. If you've seen photos of that, like there can be no snow on the summit and there was no snow on, on the summit of, uh, of Ojos when I was there. So kind of crazy, but Cotopaxi, much lower, uh, 58, 97 meters, but huge glacier, um, big crevasses. Um, you know, as far as glaciated mountains go it's about as simple and safe as you can as you can get um there's there's not a huge there there aren't like huge technical pieces or anything like that so as a kind of gateway drug it felt very comfortable but at the same time it was a big step to be like okay i don't i've never really traveled like on a big mountain glacier before without being on a rope team 
Um, and now I'm going out by myself, basically in like trail running shoes with micro spikes and um, like poles. I didn't even have an ice axe. So it was, uh, it, it definitely felt scary from both like, okay, this is a big record. And also like, this is literally something that it's kind of intimidating and, you know, it's probably pushing the boundaries of like risk that I'm willing to take in the mountains um, to a new level, which, you know, I definitely had to sit down and think about it. And I remember it was, we kind of had one good weather window and I took a couple of days where I didn't even really talk to anyone about it. Like originally this route was not on my um, Los Dies, which is the big 10 uh, FKTs that I was, I'm trying to set this year. So this kind of came at the last minute of just like, we had a big patch of bad weather and had a little tiny window and this mountain had good weather. And it was like, all right, is this something I want to go for? Do I feel comfortable with it? Um, and I took a couple of days to kind of just sit on it and think about it. And, you know, I thought about my experiences and safety and risk and all those things. And I decided, Hey, yeah, this is, this is something that I'm comfortable doing. And, you know, it, it all, it actually worked out really well. It was, um, you know, I, it's kind of crazy because I actually tied Carl's round trip record. It was an hour and 37 minutes and his time was from like eight years ago and they didn't have the seconds time. So his is just listed as 137. And I think I ran like 137.05 or something. And I was like, Carl, what were your seconds, man? <laughs> we like couldn't <laughs> figure it out. So like I got him on the ascent uh, by a couple of minutes and then he got me on the descent and then we ended up it's like tied to the minute, which is kind of wild. Um, but, you know, it was, again, one of those experiences when we were talking about kind of like the fork in the road. And I feel like that was one where I was like, everything up to this point had been like, yeah, it felt good, but it's kind of hard to know, like context wise, like what these times mean. Um, but when it's like, okay, if I'm even within spitting distance of Carl, like that's really, really good for me. And was really exciting. So I think that was the one where it was like, okay, hundred percent, like this is something that I want to do more of that. I want to get better at that. I want to learn more about. And so it was a huge, huge positive in terms of just coming away with obviously a, a safe ascent and descent and, and a record, which is great, but also just being really stoked about, I want to keep doing this and I want to learn more about it and see what else I can do here. Yeah, absolutely. Also, you know, we talked about challenges last time, specifically for, for those who may not know how you do it. How do you deal with altitude? Because, I mean, I presume when you're talking about the second biggest mountain in, in the Americas and when you're talking about Cotopaxi, you don't just sort of decide to run up and, uh, and down in a day. You have to <laughs> do something to prepare for it. Yeah, totally. And And that's kind of one of the things that, got me into this realm was I've always been someone who's handled altitude pretty well. I've, you know, been able to train really well for road running and track running up to, you know, 10,000 feet, like 3000 meters. Uh, I spent a lot of time there between uh, Peru and Ecuador. And then here in the U S out in Flagstaff, which is a little bit lower, we're more like 2000 meters, 7,000 feet here. But I've been mountaineering just kind of, again, for fun, like in my off season up to, I think like 6,400, 6,500 before this year in Peru. Um, and again, had had really positive experiences there. Never really had any problems with altitude and, you know, was always had really good energy levels and acclimated well to really high stuff. So I always kind of had this inkling of like, huh, this is like this weird thing that I have that maybe like someday will be useful other than just like, you know, my ability to chain a little bit higher than other people might be able to. And, um, I think now having 
seen like what I've done in some of these bigger mountains, like that's definitely played out well for me, but yeah, it's part of it is just physiology. It's like, you know, some people adjust altitude really well and some people don't. And that's just something you kind of have to figure out for yourself through trial and error and experimentation. And, you know, some of it is also like, we worked really hard uh, at the beginning of the year to like, we had a really aggressive acclimatization program ahead of Ojos to make sure that, you know, even like for someone like me or someone who is, you know, adapts really well to altitude and does well at altitude, you still can't go from sea level to, you know, 6,900 meters or, or even from, you know, Flagstaff here at 2,000 meters to 7,000 meters. Like you can't just do that in one day. So like we had, I think one week in, in Quito in in Ecuador and, and the surrounding areas before we went down to Chile and uh, we did a, just an easy climb up Cotopaxi that week and, and a bunch of other shorter climbs. So it was very much a, a gradual thing where it was like, okay, we did a 5,000 meter peak, then a 5,800 meter peak. And then we went down to, uh, to Chile and we had, I think like two weeks before the FKT where, you know, we did a handful of 6,000s and some 5,000s. And I think we got up to like 6,400 or something before, um, before going to the summit of Ojos the first time. Um, so we actually did a hiking ascent all the way to the summit um, before the FKT day. So scouted out the route, got all the way up to the top, came back down, um, had a couple of rest days. So we, we'd spent a lot of time. I mean, I'd probably been over 6,000 meters like five or six times uh, by the time we actually got to FKT day for Ojos. So it's it's like, you know, there's two sides to, to everything. I think with altitude, it's the same thing. There's the kind of physiological side of just like, you know, pick your parents well. And then there's like the training side of, okay, how do you, how do you adjust well? And how do you kind of push the limit of, you know, being as aggressive as you can and spending as much time as high as you can without overdoing it and, you know, not letting your body recover or getting altitude sickness or something. And I think we did a really good job of straddling that line where, you know, we got up high a lot, but then we would come down and sleep low so our bodies could recover well. And, you know, I think I had a couple like really rough nights. I remember where we tried to sleep high, but other than that, it was, it was really, really good. Like I remember feeling really good almost every day in the mountains that we had there and um, was sleeping well at, you know, 3,800, 4,000 meters. It's kind of our base camp. So yeah, overall it was, uh, it worked really well. And you know, that's, that's what you have to do to get up to those big mountains is just get your body used to it. Yeah. I was going to say, I, one of my questions was follow-up ones. I was going to say, you know, do you ever consider camping out? But you I mean, you just said you, you had a couple of rough nights trying to, trying to sleep high. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause like we, I, like there's, I've met a lot of people and I think this is kind of the going wisdom, especially like in the Himalayan stuff is like, Oh, you go up and you sleep at high camp and then you just come back down for me. I don't know. I just, whenever, whenever I do that, it doesn't go well. <laughs> like I had a couple of nights where we would like, yeah, we do a mountain and then we'd like sleep up higher on the mountain or something. And I just felt like I always did better at like, you know, sleep. We're still, we're not sleeping low. We're sleeping at 4,000 meters or something. That was kind of our base camp, but like going up to 6,000 and then coming back down all the way to 4,000 to sleep. I just felt like I recovered way better. And then I was able to go out the next day and do like another 6,000 meter mountain or something. And for me personally, I would just, I would rather do that. It's more fun. It's less uncomfortable, but you get to do more versus just, you know, like 
on Ojos, for example, there's, there are a lot of people that will like hike up to 6,000 meters and there's a campsite at 6,000, which is insane. And they'll try they'll spend the night there and then they'll just hike back down. I'm like, why do you do that? Like, it's freaking miserable. You just toss and turn all night. You don't really sleep. It's freaking cold. Like, it's just, it's just awful. Like it's, and I don't know, maybe that's like a super climatization tactic. I just, I haven't found it necessary up to this point to do things like that. Like the only night that we really slept high was the night that we absolutely had to, which was the night before we made our hiking ascent. I think we slept at 5,200 meters or something at base camp. Um, but still it's like, you have the option to sleep at base camp or high camp and yeah, it'll save you a couple hours on summit day. But again, I would rather just walk a couple more hours and get a better night's sleep and let my body, you know, recover better be more well rested for a big summit day so i think it's person to person again i haven't been high in the himalaya i haven't been over seven thousand. so maybe once you get up to those kind of altitudes then it's completely necessary but for me i would always just rather climb high and sleep low it clearly works but i suppose you're not exactly going to be breaking any records if you haven't slept properly for two weeks (laughs) yeah exactly so it's like it's hard enough to sleep at you know four thousand meters but i find that that's an altitude that I can adjust to and, and sleep quite well. Um, so I think it's just, it's like knowing your limits, like where can I, where can I get a good night's sleep? I think that's the most important question for me when I'm, especially doing like a big project that involves like a lot of hard training is like, again, this is probably the difference with Himalaya is like the actual hiking or walking or climbing that you're doing might not actually be that much. It might not be that strenuous. It's mostly just the oxygen you're dealing with. So for me, it's like when I'm doing something like this, I'm really in a training phase. It's like I need to be out there working hard, you know, running and climb, like speed climbing for 10 hours or 20 hours or something. Like you have to be training a lot to do that. And in order to do that training, you have to be able to recover and sleep and stuff. So I think for me, that's just always going to be the priority, at least on on mountains like this. Again, maybe if I get to go to Himalaya and do some big mountains there, then it might be different, but I would still be interested to talk to guys who have climbed really, really light and quick there, like Killian. And like, I assume Carl is planning to do and, and some more recent American crews as well, but just talk to folks about like, yeah, like, how'd you do that? Like, what did you do for acclimatization and kind of see what, what that's like over there? Yeah, for sure. So heading up an altitude now you know, for the bird's eye view, I heard you talking mm-hmm. about not the pursuit of happiness, but the happiness of pursuit. So not just <laughs> mountains. What is it exactly that inspires your goals and your running? That That's a good and deep question. I, I don't really know if I have a great answer for you. I feel like I'm still kind of trying to figure that out every day. Um, I think what inspires these pursuits. I mean, I think that you have to find that joy in pursuit, the joy in the process of whatever you're doing, because, you know, whether it's a work thing or a family thing or anything, sports thing, the actual achievement of a goal is great. It's fantastic. It feels awesome. And then like your life doesn't usually change that much. uh, And that feeling doesn't last forever. So, you know, all these records, it's like, oh, they're so fun. They're great. They're fantastic days, great memories, like all this stuff. I feel really 
you know, like I accomplished this cool thing. And then it's like the next day I wake up and I'm like, okay, and now what, like, what am I doing? Um, you know, what's going to keep that fire going inside me and keep me excited and motivated going forward. And I think it, it took me a while to figure that out that, you know, you really have to love the everyday, like unsexy, just like day in, day out training and everything that comes with it. And, and again, this applies to everything, not just, not just mountaineering or running or, or even sports, but like across the board, it's like, if you're like waiting for that raise at work, it's like, okay, you get that. And then like, then what, like, okay, now you have something else. It's like, if you don't enjoy the process of getting to that point, then, you know, 98% of your time is going to be the process of getting there, not the actual getting of the thing itself. So it's tricky because there is a ton of delayed gratification in life and in sport. And I think that like, I do a lot of that. I am very good at like accepting that something might suck for a while because it's going to be great later or it's going to be great in retrospect. Like that's kind of like what endurance sport is all about, both like in the moment of a competition and in the training, like you'll go through periods of your training where you just feel exhausted and miserable all the time. And if you don't have that carrot at the end that, that you're working towards, then it's like, okay, I'm just like, why am I doing this? Why am I running myself into the ground and, you know, feeling tired and not having a social life or whatever it is that, that you're, you know, making sacrifices to, to, to pursue this thing. But I think that that's uh, like, you have to have that delayed gratification sense. Like you, it go, I guess what I'm saying is it goes both ways. So you have to be able to deal with some sense of, of like, okay, I'm kind of putting up with this to like work towards something else. But at the end of the day, like if you're miserable all the time, then you probably shouldn't be doing it. Like you have to kind of find some joy in the misery. Yeah. And like at least growth, you know, maybe not joy, but, but growth and fulfillment maybe is a better word. And so I think that's really what I look for in, in running and, and training and, and everything is like, I know that not every single day is going to feel good. And there are going to be lots of days where I wake up and I'm like, I don't want to run today. I don't want to do anything. I want to lie around and, you know, eat ice cream all day and hang out with my friends. And, you know, like I know that I could do that and it would probably be okay for one day and I would have fun or whatever. Um, but I also know that like, that's not the lifestyle that I want to lead in the long term. And so I get through those days that feel like a complete slog or I feel really tired and, you know, my legs feel really heavy. And I just accept that like, Hey, this is the price I pay for the lifestyle that I want. And I think that the moment that those days start to outnumber the days where I go out and I feel really joyful and I enjoy being outside and I enjoy sweating and I enjoy getting my heart rate up and being in the mountains, like, the moment that I stop enjoying those days is the moment that I won't actually do this anymore because that's really, that's really my motivation is, you know, that part of the process is just like being able to, you know, okay, I spend hours outside every single day exercising. Like that's my job right now, which is an awesome job. And the moment that I stop appreciating that and enjoying that, and I think that's when it all stops because, it's not just about trying to get records or medals or whatever. It's about having a lifestyle that I actually enjoy. You know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, essentially, you know, enjoying the pursuit and then just keep checking and making sure that you enjoy type two fun. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, and, and again, there are people that don't enjoy type two fun and it's like, if you don't enjoy type two fun, then like endurance sport and like ultra running is especially is probably not for you. You know, if you can't look at something that was kind of miserable and scary at the time, and then the next day look back at it and be like, yeah, that was pretty cool. Like <laughs> if, you, if that's not you, then like, this is not for you. Like that. Cause I feel like I have so many days where I'm like, Oh man, like even like all these NPTs IFPs are talking about, it's like there are lots of moments in those days where I was like, oh my God, I'm, this sucks. Like I hate this. And yet, like I look back and I'm like, oh, those are so fun. Like I can't wait to do something like that again. You know, it's so messed up, but it's like, it's totally true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I listened to a Jason Fox's Wild Tales podcast and he was talking about, uh, you know, type one, type two fun. And then they, they had a little throwaway comment on the end, but I think it's so true. He, they, he said, it's usually the type two fun you're talking about when you're having type one fun. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, that's, that's so great. I've never thought about that before, but that's a really great way to put it. Yeah, it's like when you're when you're having type one fun, you're never telling stories about having type one fun. You're never like ha- like sitting around drinking beers with your friends and talking about another time that you were sitting around <laughs> drinking beers with your friends. You're talking about like, oh man, yeah, I was like out there running and there was a thunderstorm and it was so scary. And then I was like running in the rain. I was getting hypothermia. It was crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, we've talked about some pretty big goals and achievements here and this kind of a nice segue moving into it but what would you say was the most important race that perhaps went badly but taught you the most that's a really good question um i think some of these road ultras i mean let me let me i'll give you one specific answer so it won't sound like i'm dodging the question um <laughs> so in 2019 my sponsor Hoka organized a hundred kilometer road race uh, for some of our athletes as part of, they were launching a new shoe and they wanted us to go out and go after the hundred K world record and also the 50 mile world record, like in one go. So we're going to like go for the 50 mile record on route to the hundred K. And this was the longest race I'd ever done by a factor of two. I'd never run more than 50 K and I was just like, I made all the mistakes that new ultra runners make. Like I just, I was way overconfident. I was way um, like, I didn't respect the record enough. Um, I just, I just like completely underestimated everything about it. I underestimated the other guys in the race. You know, I think there was some, naivete arrogance like all those things there and sometimes like honestly those things can be really valuable like in these mountain things i think i had a lot of the same naivete and arrogance where i was like i don't really know much about this so i'm just going to do what i think i can do no matter what like that says relative to you know other people who have done these things and i like this is just what i think i can do and i'm not really worried about what other people have done i'm just going to try and do this stuff um, even if it seems like, oh, that's really aggressive on paper. Um, it's like, sometimes that goes really well because I think that naivete can kind of give you the freedom to like not put limits on yourself. But I also think it can, you know, there's a reason it's like arrogance is, is a thing is because like, like usually not a good thing is because you end up underestimating what you're trying to do and overestimating yourself. And that's exactly what I did there. And, you know, I think, that race in particular like I didn't finish that race I think I made it about 40 miles and 
um, just completely like my body shut down. And um, I think it was good in that it made me really go back to the drawing board of how to prepare for some of these longer races and starting to think about, okay, what is the different, like, like what am, what are the pieces of the training puzzle that I'm taking from this shorter stuff, like the track and road and marathon stuff. And then like, what are the new pieces of the puzzle that I need to figure out and add uh, from a, you know, a real ultra perspective? Cause like 50 K is basically a marathon, you know, it takes under three hours, but um once you start getting into, into hundred K races that last, you know, six hours or more, like it's a different kind of event. Um, so I think from a pure, just like training perspective, it was really valuable because it really made me rethink things. And then it also like attitudinally just made me really shift my mindset of like, okay, what am I like? How, how do I approach these things that are really new and scary and I think making sure that like I give myself the shot to have that kind of like newbie confidence that you can have when I'm trying something like I did with this mountain stuff, but also like listening to people that I really trust and respect and making sure that like, I'm not completely setting myself up for failure. Yeah. You've answered two questions in one there for me as well. I was going to chat to you about DNFs and your mindset behind that too. I, I mean, I've hinted at it in the quote, uh, you're on the interview too. You are such a big advocate for patience and, and going back and, you know, spending the time preparing for something. Do, do you think that one of those, that race, that 100 kilometer race was something that really, really enforced that for you? Or, or was that the start of your appreciation for the patience? Um, I think I definitely gained more respect for patience in that race. Um, and how much patience you need, especially in long ultra races, um, that like, if things start to go badly in a marathon, usually it's like after the 30 kilometer mark and you might only have 30 or 40 minutes of running left at that point. So I think it's like a new scale of patience that you need once you start talking about events where if you have a problem, you might have multiple hours left to deal with that. Like I've, I've always seen patience as, as virtue and something to work towards. And whether it's on a macro level of like, you know, patience of goal setting and making sure that you have goals that make sense now and like having those really big pipe dream goals, but, but, you know, having kind of the intermediary goals between, and maybe you're working towards a goal that's five or 10 years away. And then also like at a micro level, like in a specific race, you know, learning the patience of how to race and how to judge effort and things like that. So I think that that particular race definitely taught me a lot about this. Well, I guess both really like on a macro level, it taught me like, Hey, I think I can be pretty good at this, but it's probably going to take me longer than I thought. I'm not going to be able to just set a world record at my first attempt at this thing. Um, it's going to take years of figuring this out and making mistakes and learning from them and tweaking my training and my mentality and adjusting going forward. And then even in the microcosm level of, okay, I think that I need to completely readjust my sense of patience on race day and what that actually means and what my effort needs to feel like at various points um, in a race, because it doesn't really scale uh, up from, from a marathon, it is a completely different kind of, of event. So, yeah, I think that that taught me a lot about, about patience. And I think, I think just as we get older, you just get more, like you learn more that like, you just have to be a 
patient to like have a successful life as an adult. Um, <laughs> so I, I think that like every year I feel like I teach myself that lesson a little bit more and gets a little bit more ingrained, you know? Yeah. So I've got some, I got one last question before we dive into some wrap up ones. And you might remember this from the last time, but you've quoted Matthew McConaughey as in saying, I step in shit all the time and recognize it when I do. I've just learned how to scrape it off my boots and carry on. You've clearly carried this attitude into your career, you know, as we just discussed and gone on to achieve so much. But what is one moment that you would love to relive? A moment I'd love to relive. Um, are we talking about a stepping in shit moment or a no. not stepping in shit moment? A brilliant moment. A brilliant moment? Um, man, it's funny. Now I think, like, I think that, like, in my early 20s and stuff, when I was kind of getting into the competitive, more competitive running scene, it was, you know, the moments that stuck out to me were like big victories or, you know, setting records or like big PRs and things like that. And now, when I think back to, you know, even 10 years ago, I was competing in for the NCAA, like the university system in the U.S. It's like maybe I, I'm sure COVID and lockdowns have exacerbated this, but like I think the things that I think about most are the moments that were just like really joyful moments with other people. Um, I think my, my, like all of my trips to, world championships for example like being on the u.s national team like i've been on three u.s national teams one of them went really well for me two of them went really badly and all three are like fantastic memories like i have such good memories from all three of those trips and like yeah obviously the, the one where i got a silver medal is great and like that's like has a little extra shine to it maybe but i think that all all those trips is just like you don't uh, as an adult pro runner you don't usually get the opportunity to compete in a team environment like that where like you know you're you're cooped up in a hotel room with all your teammates for, for a week or so around the race. And it's just, it's so much fun. It feels like being back in college. And um, I think that that's definitely one of the, one of the moments that I, I look to now, like, like literally today, just thinking about like, Oh yeah, what, what's the answer to that question? Like, I think it's those moments of just like being around a really fun group of people and, you know, you're all working towards something together, um, you know, whether it's, I'm a, like a team moment like that, or even just like, I've, I've been that, um, like I've been the crew person, like support person at some of my friends, ultra races. Like that's a really, really fun experience. Cause again, it kind of feels like a team effort. Like we're all in this thing together. Um, so I think for me, it's, it's honestly like, those are the moments that I, I want to relive. And, and, you know, we talk about reliving, but it's also just like creating more of those moments. Like, okay, I want to, I want to be on teams. I want to, be in you know groups where I support other people where I have people supporting me and we all feel like we're kind of working towards something together I think it's that that human connection side of things is the thing that for me really that's what I have the most fun doing it's the thing that I you know look back on the most fondly so yeah I think that's that's probably the the moment that I I would just love to relive and and hopefully create more of absolutely 100% although I'm curious to know what would one moment where you stepped in shit be like if you were to relive? Oh gosh. Um, to relive a stepping in shit moment. Um, <laughs> Should you be cursed and go back? Oh, yeah, let me think. Um, yeah. I mean, I would actually probably give kind of a similar answer to what I just said with like, it's so like my very first experience at worlds, for example, I was on the 2015 um, 50 K team for the U S and I had a really bad race there. And 
I think like after the race, I like that's a moment that was a big learning moment of like, hey, your race can go poorly and yet you can still have a really positive experience. Like that was the first time that I'd really experienced that because I put so much of my, you know, personal validation and like sense of self into my running performance that like it was very hard for me to separate that from my overall experience with something. So it's like, if the race went bad, then like the whole weekend was ruined, you know? And I think that was one of the first times where I was able to be like, okay, yeah, you had a bad race, but like it's not the end of the world. And like, you're going to learn from this. You've made some amazing friends. You've had like, you got to be in this crazy place and like with all these people. And so it was definitely a stepping in shit moment of like, it was a terrible race for me, but it was also like, it was a huge learning moment of, Hey, like there's more to life than running fast and running PRs and getting medals. Like it's also like, obviously those, like, that's why we do sport is like to push ourselves and do well. But it's also like, again, going back to kind of the lifestyle question, it's like, I am doing this thing because it enables me to have a lifestyle on the day to day that I really enjoy. And part of that is like being surrounded by amazing people and having these cool relationships and, and, I, that would never happen if it weren't for my athletic career. So I think that's, that's a very good, like stepping in shit and scraping it off example of like, yeah, stepped in the shit. I kind of like gave myself 12 hours to feel really sorry for myself and miserable about it. And then like, even the next day, I remember like I was, you know, I was having like fun with, with the other people on the team. And, um, you know, I think that was kind of a maturing process for me. I think even a couple of years before that, I, I wouldn't have been able to do that. Yeah. Inspiring as well. Yeah. You're right. It's almost liberating, isn't it? The, those moments. Yeah. So I've got two wrap up questions then. First one is if you could run only mountains or road for a year, which one would it be? Oh gosh. Um, if it's just a year, I would definitely say mountains right now because I've basically been doing that for the roads for like the last 10 years. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> that's an easy one. Um, yeah, I, I feel like I, I'm actually, so I'm racing this weekend in a, on a flat race and I'm actually going back to all the stuff about world's teams. And that's probably why it's on my mind. I'm, I'm trying to make my fourth world's team. So I'm running a 50 K to qualify for that. And after that, I'm, going basically right back to the mountains i have some more fkt stuff planned for the summer and then hopefully doing a, a big mountain trail race at the end of the summer um still kind of finalizing that but i'm super super excited to get back into that so i think that's definitely like where my heart is right now is in the mountains and so yeah that that's a that's a pretty easy one for now <laughs> perfect and then lastly where can we keep up to date with your adventures so my, I'm on mostly on Instagram. If people want to follow along, it's uh, Tyler C Andrews. Uh, that's my account name. And then I'm also, uh, I'm the founder of Chosky Endurance Collective, which we put out a ton of content and we also do coaching. That's our kind of how we keep the lights on. Um, we're actually organizing some trips and camps and stuff this year. Um, so I post a lot on there, all my writings and recaps and like F all the FKT project info is up on there. So that's at uh, Chosky.Endurance, C-H-A-S-K-I. Um, so yeah, those are those are the two places I keep up with me. Perfect. And I'll put them in the show notes as well. But Tyler, thank awesome. you so much for coming on the podcast. That was great. Thank you. Of course. Thanks. It's my pleasure. 
So that was Tyler Andrews, and thank you to Tyler for coming back a second time. The interview quality just, you know, just it just dropped on the first one, and actually, I think he was even better the second time round. So thank you so much for coming on. I really hope you all enjoyed the episodes too. If you did, get in touch on Instagram or on Facebook or btmtravelpod at gmail.com. Be sure to check out the Buy Me A Coffee feature if you want to support the podcast or just simply share on Instagram as well. But, you know, no further delay. I hope you have a fantastic week. I'll see you in the next episode, which is a bit similar to this one, and I know you're going to love it. See ya! See ya!